and you've tuned in to another episode of The Wellness Couch, where science and ancient wisdom collaborate at Polar Bay Radio 87.6 FM. And let me introduce you to a very special guest that we have all the way from the USA, Washington State tonight. We have Megan um, Miller in the studio. We've got Matt also, even though you probably won't do any talking. And we've got Brett tonight as um, our coach. How are you going? How are you all going? Oh, great. What about yourself? Fantastic. We've got the expert talking about self-compassion, lifting our self-esteem and trauma in relationships. So um, tell us a bit about yourself, Megan. Yeah. So um, I am a psychologist resident, like you said, in the U.S. Um, I am um, mostly doing psychotherapy right now as I work. Um, I'm actually luckily able to work through telehealth online while I'm here in Australia for a stint with um, family. So, um, yeah, I've spent um, some years seeing folks in um, therapy. I also do some assessment as well. And um, I'm originally from um, Idaho in the U.S., the potato state. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, I'm just happy to be here. I mostly have worked in the past with um, trauma as well as kind of adolescence age up and couples. So, yeah, I've had some really great experiences. Brett, you're in tonight. I am. Yeah, great. So we're talking about self-compassion. Um, Obviously, interpersonal relationships are one of the most profound, um, vital experiences in a soul's life. They range from close and intimate to distant and challenging. And you've got some mm. fantastic... I've seen you. You're, you've been on with clients all week. Yep. And we're lucky enough to have you in the, the studio. So let's talk about... Uh, one of your specialties, trauma in relationships and what you actually so deal with. So I might just jump in. Yeah. So before we jump into the, the depth of it all, Dr. Megan, uh, <laughs> how did you, what drew you to psychology? Oh, yeah. So um, I always knew from a pretty young age I wanted to work with people in some sort of helping profession. Um, and I typically turned out to kind of be, you know, the therapist friend. Um, a lot of friends came <laughs> to me for advice and thoughts and, you know, all of that good stuff. And I just found I loved it. Um, and as I got older, I also was like, I don't think I want to be a nurse. That was kind of the next <laughs> thing that came to my mind. And I just didn't think yep. that type of science was for me. Um, and so I actually chose this profession to go into when I was like 13 or 14 and surprisingly have stuck with it the whole time. So I think it was just kind of right. But um, I also grew up with my um, mother working with um, a lot of children with disabilities. And so I connected a lot with that, did some of my own work as well. And it just kind of took off from there, I think. Yeah, so when you say you're stuck with it, there's a there's a lot of work involved in, in going through that process as well, isn't there? So mm-hmm. like yeah. in the States, it's probably slightly different to Australia, I think. And mm-hmm. in America, you have to go through all the way through to your doctorate yeah. and finish your doctorate before you can actually become a psychologist. Yeah, so um, in the US, to be a clinical psychologist and do what I'm doing, um, you have to get a doctorate. So it's a five-year program on top of kind of what you do at university before then. Yeah. Um, so I'm um, in the process of getting my license in Washington State. Um, but after you're kind of finished with your program, you can use that title, which is not yeah, true nice. in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So. Which means she can practice broad, uh, broad state too. And um, she can't mm. take clients from Australia at the moment. No. No. Yeah, so we'll just yeah. mention that on the, um, on the program. Alrighty. So... Um, like I said previously, you've got um, a specialty in uh, trauma and relationships, so you mm-hmm. see so much. Talk to us about uh, what you actually take people through. Yeah, so... Um, uh, starting from, you know, yeah. what is um, actual trauma? Because it's, it's yeah. uh, people have different perceptions, don't they? Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, 
usually when I'm sitting with someone, I kind of leave it up to them how they'd like to, to name it. Um, if I'm noticing it coming up, I can, you know, bring that up and say, hey, I'm wondering if how you feel about this word. This is kind of what I'm thinking. But kind of broadly in my mind, I define it as something that um, has happened to you that is still impacting you to this day. It can have to do, you know, with interpersonal interactions. Um, I work with a lot of folks who've had, you know, trauma growing up in childhood, whether that be, you know, the more traditional child um, abuse that we hear about to like having emotionally immature parents who can't be there for them. Um all the way up to things like inner partner violence. And um, yeah, so it's, I kind of see a broad range of folks um, who have had lots of different experiences. So. That's yeah. a lot, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? So when you think about that broad range of things, mm-hmm. it must be some, some quite interesting cases that come through. Absolutely. Yeah. I've seen a whole lot of different things. And yeah. even um, with couples, I think it comes up a lot that, a lot of the people that come in for couples therapy happen to be two people who have their own trauma that, you know, maybe they haven't been able to heal from and it shows up pretty easily in relationships or it sometimes can show up too in parenting. A lot of people will be triggered by parenting yeah. when they have their own, yeah. you know, childhood trauma. So where do you start when they, where do you yeah. start with all of that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, what does it look like to a person, you know, to have, um, uh, intrusive symptoms or, or yeah. tra- trauma symptoms in a relationship? What type of symptoms do they display? Yeah, so I would say a lot of folks, what I notice is the main theme is them getting to a point where they're behaving in certain ways in relationships that feel a little bit out of their control. So, um, for example, I think we hear a lot about the diagnosis like borderline personality disorder, right? I have mixed emotions about that diagnosis because I think it often comes from interpersonal trauma and it can be changed. Um, But like, for example, that diagnosis, people are really like, come here, go away. They want people close, but it's terrifying to have them close. They're really clingy and then they're really distant, right? So they're just kind of dysregulated in these relationships and have a really hard time connecting in a way that works for everyone. So usually that'll mean, you know, People are experiencing dynamics that aren't happening in their relationship, but it feels like it because what they've been through, because they're kind of afraid of that, you know, thing happening again, where they're so scared that, you know, another trauma happens to them. So they'll often respond like they would to their abuser or to who traumatized them with the closest person to them because they're, you know, trying to gain some safety. So often we'll see a lack of emotional safety and it can kind of be pretty varied. Yeah. Is it obvious if someone has been traumatized from the outside? Not always. I feel like um, we use the words internalizers and externalizers a lot. So for example, like externalizers would maybe be people who kind of fly off the handle emotionally really easy or are emotionally reactive or, you know, cry a lot. Whereas internalizers might keep it all in and you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes because they, you know, are overthinking in their head or they're being really hard on themselves or whatever it might look like. So I think some people can be a little louder about it depending on their trauma too, especially if they felt unheard. I've noticed that as a theme sometimes. People will get kind of loud because they're like, you know, I was never heard before, so... I'm going to make sure I am now. And then others just stay quiet um, or don't ask for their needs to get met. 
yeah. because they're not sure how or they're afraid they won't. Yeah, in theory, I mean, we've had some great chats throughout the week, yeah. particularly today. Yeah. So, um, because Megan and Matt are staying with us, but um, um, you were saying that some patients actually don't even know that they're actually traumatized. Yeah. Um, so, how do you know if a relationship mm. has traumatized you? Well, I think that might be one that's that can be discovered, or, or you know, is depends on how folks want to define it. But um, something I've noticed is I think throughout my studies, I, you know, defined mental illnesses so specifically and the way that I learned them right. And then I kind of found along the way that there was a lot of trauma underneath a lot of these things. And I think I only learned that through doing, you know, deeper therapy where we kind of get to the heart of things and see, you know, instead of kind of slapping Band-Aids on symptoms and... I found that like I would have someone come in and say, you know, I'm enraged all the time and I have no idea why this has never been a problem. And then we see that, oh, it's actually trauma resurfacing from 20 years ago. So I've had things even that distant, but it's usually I just kind of ask people about their relationships pretty early on because I feel like support ends up being really important to everyone um, in the type of therapy I practice. The ideal is kind of moving towards having mutually supportive relationships that function well for everyone most of the time um, because we're not supposed to do it alone. Um, So sometimes also people will be doing it alone and and blaming themselves and thinking they should be doing more um, or struggling to connect in relationships or feeling like there's something that they're just not getting. Um, So it kind of depends, but usually I find that at some point people have been invalidated or misunderstood or you know, felt to not be enough at some point, and that's just kind of radiated out into the way they look at the world and themselves. Brett, you're reading a book on narcissism. A lot of people think that narcissists actually develop behaviours because of their trauma and their behavioural patterns that help Mm -hmm. them survive and cope. Yeah, that's that nature versus nurture piece, isn't it? -hmm. Um, So some people are... According to the psychologist that wrote the book, um, I think he's a Swedish guy, mm-hmm. um, but I can't remember his name. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of stuff that's there. He says that they won't change um, because it's just in their nature. Mm. So um, whether it comes from you know past trauma, but I think the thing is if it's actually caused by past trauma, because a lot of people like to claim that. He goes, you can actually work through that mm. um, and generally come out the other side. He said, but a narcissist, you won't. That's a perspective anyway. I say the expert, our expert. So (laughs) what's it like dating someone with trauma? (laughs) It depends. Um, Sorry, Matt, it's not you. I'm just saying. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) No, he's a great partner. It helps me go out and work with folks who are having a hard time um, (laughs) that are partners. But um, I would say um, it can depend across the board. I talk to a lot of people about these kind of three ways of being in relationships in conflict. So there's um, move towards, move away, and move against. Um, Moving towards is, you know, the person in the relationship that's like, let's talk about it now, let's solve the problem, and feels pretty, you know, upset when they can't do that right away. That feels distressing. There's um, the move away person who feels threatened by the conflict at all and just wants to take space away, needs a break, needs whatever. Um, And then move against is 
kind of what it sounds like, you know, the one you don't want. It's usually what shows up in abusive relationships where then you move against your partner in conflict, right? Um, And I found like 99% of the time that the move away and move towards people fall in love and get married um, because they're opposite the way they grow up in their families. Yeah. Yeah. So I've sat with a lot of people where um, one family, their parents were so passive aggressive that they would just hide in their rooms and then pretend nothing ever happened. And so then those people feel really threatened by being yelled at or they had, you know, a parent who yelled at them a lot and they never got to speak up or share their their piece. Um, And then I'll have on the other side families who have always spoken up and yelled at each other and, you know, figured it out. Or even again, the opposite where, you know, the child never got to speak. So now as an adult, they're like, I want to make sure I say what I have to say. Mm. Um, So people react so differently sometimes. And yeah, I feel like somehow, in my experience, at least, they usually marry each other. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I feel like trauma comes up when you're your kind of greatest fear that you feel was confirmed when you were little is the thing you're the most afraid of. So like, for example, um, a lot of people have this fear of not being enough, right? So they grow up hearing that or they go through relationships where that's true or they feel like it's true. And so then they may be at home trying to do everything perfectly so that never happens. And then when they slip one time or their partner expresses something, then they're really defensive and protective because their greatest fear feels like it's at risk. And so that's kind of how I end up trying to get to with a lot of my couples is how can we acknowledge when our relational fears are coming up? Because relational fears, right, mean in the end, if I'm not enough, what does that mean? I'm alone. And that's the worst thing that any of us can be. We don't want that at all. Um, So I usually try and move people towards this idea of you know, when this fear comes up, can you grow close enough to share that with each other instead of kind of, you know, putting this wall up that you've had to for your whole life to protect yourself from that outcome, right? That being alone. So if it goes well, I can get there relatively quickly with people who are able to share more about their past with their partner. And yeah, I see all sorts of attachment styles at play usually. Um, we talked about one of those today, didn't we? Yeah. How women um, feel responsible sometimes for changing men, yeah. though that, that's not going to be a really good outcome. Um, no. But they're addicted to actually trying to change that man or save him. Yeah. So you've had quite a bit of that experience in your clinic. Yeah, I think I've, I've definitely sat with some people who care a lot for their partner in a lot of ways. They'll manage the house, they'll manage their emotions, and then... Yeah, they feel like they can help the partner live a better life or they need to, you know, just love them harder and it will work out. But sometimes that ends up being quite unequal and can lead to resentment. So it can be tricky. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I think that goes both ways too, doesn't it? So mm-hmm. I mean, especially when we start talking archetypes, you know. Oh, yeah. The prince always wants to rescue the damsel mm-hmm. in distress. And as the prince grows up and matures and becomes a king if the damsel in distress doesn't mature and mm-hmm. become the queen to match the king then like you said that resentment builds up and the relationship yeah. can implode so yeah, it definitely definitely plays out doesn't it yeah can trauma stop you from loving someone I don't know about stop you but maybe make it a lot more challenging yeah, yeah. yeah. I think even 
when people are being loved by others, it can be hard to feel if you're also working really hard to protect yourself, even if there's a really good reason for it. I know people will come in because they feel like they can't trust anyone or they can't build relationships for that reason. And so part of building trust is a risk, though. So it is hard, right? You're taking a risk to see if someone's going to keep showing up for you over and over and over again to build that trust. Um, so I think, though, people can be scared to be loved or they can be unsure of what it feels like or be unsure what it feels like to not be in chaos anymore in their relationships, too. I've had people struggle with the stability of a healthy relationship before <laughs> when they're kind of used to this, you know, how it feels when they were at home in this chaotic environment um, or in a past partnership. So, yeah. Is that when they yeah. start the self-sabotage to create the chaos again so they feel more comfortable? Yeah, that does yeah. tend to happen. Yeah, And they'll get an opioid effect. It's a biochemical mm. effect too, they, feel that they get addicted to as well. Mm, the cortisol release. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And the opioid effect that they actually get addicted to mm. as well. There's also that syndrome. What do we call it? We're talking about it today. I've had a blank. Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm, thank oh, you. Yeah, yeah. That uh, they can be under the influence, can't they? Right. Once you're, if especially if you're, you know, manipulated in a relationship. Or in a traumatic, or, yeah, or violent yeah. relationship. Yeah. Exactly. You can kind of feel stuck, especially because, for example, if you're in, you know, a relationship where you're with someone that's emotionally abusing you or manipulating you then often part of that is that you get isolated from the people that you usually would be around. Um, you start to question your own reality. You know, a lot can happen before people are asking, like, why won't they leave? Um, usually there's some good reasons, but they're hard to understand from the outside. Um, I even heard some people say, like, my safety's in question if I leave, so I can't. So, yeah, I've heard it kind of across the board. And that's all overlaid too with, well, as humans, we actually have a need to be consistent. Or mm -hmm. A lot of people have that need to be consistent with their decisions. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. if they've been told at the start that, you know, this is the wrong person for you and they're going, no, no, that's the perfect person. Yeah. I need to make this, you know, I, I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden they can't five years later or 10 years later or even 20 years later go, oh, I think they were right. Yeah. You know, I was, and they don't like to, I guess, come out and say they were wrong even though that they could be at risk. What is a good relationship then? And what are the flags or red flags mm. to look out for then when people enter relationships? Yeah, I think, you know, if it feels like you're having to compromise some of your values, you know, those non-negotiables in your life, um, that's a pretty good indicator. So, for example, when I talk to people about values, I think about like, what do you want from yourself or from other people or from the world, right? So like a really important value for me is connection, probably one of my biggest ones ever. And so, for example, if my partner was keeping me away from connection, then that would be an important thing for me to take note of. How um, often does that happen to Oh, a lot of people mm -hmm. will, yeah, forego their values after a certain point or if they're, you know, if they're looking for love or care and they feel like this is all that they deserve, um, I hear that a lot, that people will take mm. less than everyone else thinks they might deserve because of, you know, how they feel about themselves already. So I think that's also why some, a lot of, you know, people who have been through trauma are more often in these relationships because um, they already have this view of themselves that's usually really off and really negative. But, yeah, I think 
if you get isolated from the people you love, that's a big one. Um, if you feel like you have to be a different version of yourself or if you're tiptoeing, that's like emotionally, if you're not looking forward to going home or you're worried about it. I feel like there's a big long list I could probably yeah. give you. But um, yeah, if it doesn't feel like there's mutual respect for both partners' time and energy and emotions, those are all things I'd be concerned about. If like I felt like I couldn't come home and talk to my partner on a hard day or a great day, then both of those would kind of worry me too. So... Yeah. Mm. yeah, and just picking up on on I guess one of the comments you made there, yeah. people don't feel like they have that self worth mm-hmm. or they don't deserve it. Yep. Um, you know, I guess some of the conversations that we've been having over the last last week is about mm-hmm. self self compassion. Mm-hmm. I'm not yep. too sure if you want to. Yeah, we can go into that. Go oh, into I was that at the moment, but there's probably only a couple of questions. If we've got anyone in the audience, so who is at risk? What do you suggest they do? Yeah, I think. In these situations, it can be hard to tell until it kind of feels too late to people. Yeah. Like you were bringing up, um, Brett, this idea that people want to continue and be consistent. There's this theory that, of course, I'm not going to remember the name of, about this idea that once you've invested a lot of time and energy into something, it's mm. really hard to stop, even yeah. if it's really not great for you anymore. Mm. So a lot of people won't quit on a lot of things, even once they don't like it or they don't feel like it's healthy for them. So I think a lot of people stay And I guess I want to say, one, there's actually a lot of online resources wherever you go that will also have, you know, pages that can log you right out. You know, if if someone comes in the room and you need it to be private, you can also, you know, reach out to one trusted person if you need to or reach out to a therapist. They can always get you some help or a psychologist. And I would say to just kind of reflect on you know, how you want to feel in a relationship and, and think about if if this feels right or if something feels a little off and you can trust, you know, your instincts sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, usually if it feels a bit off, that might be right. So you might want to, I think talking to someone about it is obviously the best, but if you're feeling really isolated, um, there's lots of online communities too or places to reach out that are very specific to things like domestic violence or emotional abuse, if that's going on. Mm. Yeah, I can be hard to take that first step. They can't sometimes. Oh, absolutely, yeah. especially if because I think there's a lot of fear. Yeah, that's a, that's a part of this experience, which totally makes sense. And fear of the know. unknown too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Fear of being alone. Better the devil you know. Exactly. Yeah. Or like someday this person will finally follow through and change, like they said they would. And that's a common cycle that you know you get love bombed at first, right? They're really kind yeah. to you and you know, slowly move towards, you know, something that's more toxic or abusive. And then after they do that, they'll often blame the victim and say, you know, you made me do this, or they'll apologize, move back into the love bombing and so on and so forth. So if it feels like a pattern, the likelihood of change is unfortunately quite low, you know, that they'll Mm. turn into the person, the safe person that you want them to be. Yeah. So yeah, it's really challenging. What are the foundations of a good relationship, though? Mm. Just for our listeners. Yeah. Mm. There's some foundations. Yeah. Because some people, obviously, you know, it seems commonplace that we would know that, but Mm-mm. some people, there's no template for them. No. Or they didn't have their parents to model, you know, in a good fashion. Absolutely. So. Yeah. I've actually had quite a few people ask me that in session before. Like, what does a healthy relationship actually look like or, or sound like? 
And I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is emotional safety, which a lot of people have a hard time knowing how that feels, especially if they're not used to it, right? If they haven't grown up with it. Um, But emotional safety means that that person is kind of your base to go out from, right? So like, if I'm taking a risk, I know that my partner will be there even if I epic fail, you know, I know that when things are really good, they'll be there. When things are really bad, they'll be there. And I feel respected by this person. When we have arguments, because arguments happen with every couple, (laughs) um, we can repair them together and nothing happens that makes it like that will ring in our head for years to come because it was like a really harmful thing to say. Um, Yeah, I think it's just that you're both working on things mutually too, that you don't feel like you're alone all the time. Or if you're starting to feel that way, you can reach out, you know, it's safe enough to do that. So yeah, I think there's a lot of answers, but trust and respect and safety are probably towards the top of my list. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, nice. So um, obviously the one who gets receives trauma normally causes trauma normally Mm. as well so we'll go to uh self-compassion let's see if we can actually help these people on this side i mean i'm not condoning their behavior but let's see if we can um instigate or impart some uh great um ways to lift self-esteem and you know self-compassion self-care yeah so do you want me to describe a little bit about self-compassion great so what what is it about because some people particularly if they're traumatized or victims, you know, might Mm -hmm. not even know what that is. Absolutely. I think it's also, you know, a bit of a newer science. Um, So we have always looked in the past at self-esteem a lot, Um, but these are all kind of words also from Dr. Kristen Neff, who is an American psychologist, I believe, um, who has kind of done all of these seminal studies on self-compassion, has a great website as well if you're interested in more information about it. It's just kristenneff.com, I believe. But it is essentially this idea that instead of us having to be the best to feel good about ourselves, which is what self-compassion leads us to, right, that you have to keep working harder and be the best, but everyone can't be the best. And sometimes we don't perform, you know, what our best is on our best day. And that that has to be okay, right? Or else we're just going to be pretty hard on ourselves. So self-compassion is this idea of relating to yourself with kindness. So a way that I explain it to a lot of um, my younger folks that I work with is, you know, how would you, how would you talk to a friend? Right. So a lot of people think about the way that they talk to themselves in their mind, which I always encourage people is very important Mm. because the way that we talk to ourselves in our mind, um, our body can't tell the difference between, you know, what we're thinking about ourselves Mm -hmm. and what we're hearing outside Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. So I always like to say, you know, imagine yourself standing in front of someone every morning and them saying, you're so lazy, you're not good enough, you're not very smart, Mm. right? That would be devastating. And I think we don't realize that that's sometimes what we do to ourselves every day. A lot of people with low self-esteem judge and criticize themselves. Intensely, yes. And so self-compassion is this idea of instead of kind of taking that that way down things, right, where you've always been hard on yourself and hypercritical, more critical than you are of other people, which is something I always notice, especially with folks who have been through trauma, is that instead you look at yourself and you say, you know, well, I tried my best and sometimes I don't make it, you know? And 
it starts, a lot of people are like, how do you actually do it in real life? <laughs> and so um, usually what I take people through is I start them off by just kind of noticing how many of these negative or harsh thoughts they're having about themselves. Most people come back the next week and go, wow, that was pretty constant, right? Or like, <laughs> that was a lot. And so now once they're noticing it, then I, we're not trying to get rid of the thoughts. We're not trying to ignore them because pretty much everyone's tried that at some point, right? It doesn't usually work super well. It comes <laughs> right back. And so instead, we're trying to follow that up with something compassionate, right? So, in, so when we say something like, you know, I'm so annoying in my head, you'd turn around and go, well, that's a little bit dramatic. I think no one really looked annoyed, so it's probably okay, <laughs> you know? Or, yeah, just following it up with like, you know, if a friend came to you and was like, I'm just not really smart, right? You wouldn't be like, you're right. <laughs> like you wouldn't want to be friends with that person, but this is the way we talk to ourselves. And so mm. instead you kind of think, you know, what's something neutral or even kind I can say to myself, even neutral helps our brains a lot. There's been studies about just decreasing the intensity of this negativity and people immediately have a drop in stress. That's great that you say neutral because I know yep. that um, in some processes or protocols that I do, some people can't actually say they love themselves. So mm -mm. they find it very difficult if they yeah. have low self-esteem. Yeah. Well, and I always like to say to, you know, do self-compassion in your own voice. So like sometimes even with, you know, my teenagers, because teenagers like to be sassy and I love that about them. So I tell them, you know, you can be sassy back. So if your your brain is like, nobody really likes you, then you can turn and be like, well, that doesn't seem accurate because I'm surrounded by friends right now. But thank you for your input. I'm going to move on, you know. And, and then, we're talking about the little voice on the shoulder. Exactly. That, you know, the little, yeah. yeah. And so then, you know, if you get even further, right, um, it's something I've started practicing in my life. And since I learned about it, I have not been able to let it go, which has been really interesting that it's impacted me pretty profoundly, too. And so I get to the point now where, like, if I have a hard day, I can put my hand on my heart and say, like, oh, my gosh, that was so difficult for you you know, what can I do to take care of myself today, right? Like, if I had a friend who went through a hard day, I'd want to maybe, you know, eat some yummy dinner together and watch a comfort movie, right? And I can give that to myself um, if I'm kind enough to do it. So it kind of ranges based on where you're at on that day or moment and kind of in your journey, but it is continuous for sure. Mm, yeah, I know from, I guess, in the coaching world, we talk about you can't, yeah. You don't necessarily control the thoughts that come into your mind, no. but you can definitely control how you respond yep. to those. And like I you said, if, if you try to suppress those down, it'll mm -hmm. just keep forcing its way back up. So, you know, exactly like you said, the best way is to go, thanks for sharing, yeah. um, but I don't want to focus on that today. I'm going to focus on whatever it's going to be. Right. Which is well, a really interesting take. Yeah. yeah. And even like, I'm thinking about, this is something that we were talking about earlier, I think you and I, Kat. But this idea of, you know, where do these harsh thoughts even come from? So in bringing back kind of this trauma piece, a lot of people will grow up hearing pretty harsh things from their parents, mm, right? Or they'll, yeah. they'll hear like, you're really lazy or, you know, you're not doing well enough or you need to work harder. And, and it gets so, tucked into the subconscious and exactly. yeah, operating and so system. Then I'll meet with people and, and kind of get to that and say like, that's not even your voice. Like someone else's voice is in your head now and they won't even realize sometimes it is still their parents' voice that they're hearing and they won't even realize it, right? And so then it's so like... I've got a side question here. Yeah. How many voices can we have and still be considered normal? 
<laughs> I've heard that 15. Yeah, yeah. Well, some wow, people... that's huge. I've heard also some people have an internal dialogue and some people don't, which yeah. blows my mind because I have a very One robust internal dialogue. Um, but... As with everything in the DSM, which is our <laughs> diagnostic manual, it depends on if it's causing you impairment or trouble in right. multiple areas of your life. But okay. yeah, are they telling you anything, Brett? I, I get concerned dangerous? where they tell me stuff that I didn't know before. Mm. Yeah, that, that always gets a bit confusing. Well, and then there's aha moments. Yeah, what do you, that's what true. Do you, what's happening? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so, um, Obviously, self-compassion is showing self-kindness um, or, or treating our worth as being unconditional. Like, mm-hmm. well, you know. Yeah, it's a, I guess there's that judge during execution of peace, isn't there, that we yes. all tend to play out in our own heads. And like you said, you, we have those universal fears about not being enough or mm-hmm. not belonging or not exactly. being loved. And it's very easy for us to be har- we generally are harsher on ourselves than we are on anybody else. Absolutely. And then yep. we then want to convict ourselves at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you're not worthy, you're not deserving, whatever it's going to exactly. be. Um, but it's about, like you said, being kind. Even if it starts with being neutral. Yeah, it's, that's it's totally a, it's, fine. It's a good place yeah. to start. Yeah. Well, this is a big topic I know, know notice at the moment that, um, you know, working on your shadow side, obviously, as mm. well, that we all have shadow sides and, you know, that we should all be actually inputting. Um on our yeah. shadow side too, to make a small mm. balance and, and make the world a better place, obviously. Yeah, face our darkness a bit. Yeah. 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 Which um, obviously then comes to um, lifting self-esteem and y- you deal with a lot of this, don't you, with teenagers as well? Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Rural schools, mental health, yeah, services, yeah. yeah, unis, yeah. Yeah. So as far as self-compassion, I find that, you know, We were kind of mentioning earlier how people will accept, you know, pretty awful relationships if they feel like they don't deserve good ones because, right, like, then they'll internalize things like I'm not a very good partner because I'm so lazy or I'm not a very good partner because, you know, I'm never going to be good enough. And so... And this extends to friendships too. Oh, absolutely. And so then people will either, you know, accept some pretty awful relationships. A lot of these folks have pretty minimal boundaries because they feel like they can't, you know, add those to their life. And so then a lot of these people will either get walked all over or, you know, they'll kind of self-sabotage even sometimes, like you were bringing Mm, up, Brett, that they'll, you know, kind of get to this point where they're, they're thinking, you know, I don't, deserve this and so that's actually something i've seen quite a bit in folks who have been through traumatic um, romantic relationships especially is they will get in a healthy one for the first time and i actually think that's one of the hardest relationships you'll ever be in because then you have to readjust and not kind of implode when everything feels good and when you know you're trying so hard not to self-sabotage and so i've I talk people through that quite a bit of like, you know, what's going through your mind and what's happening now? And do you think you deserve this? You know, and if they're pretty harsh with themselves, they often have a pretty hard time believing that. So. What steps can people take? I'm just thinking in a relationship where, Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, that subconscious operating system is ob- obviously at play in relationships and they're just starting yeah. to become aware of it. Just starting mm-hmm. to. Yeah. No, and, and link it up to, oh, this sounds like something that's happened in my childhood. Right. You know, it seems very familiar. Yeah. I often um, ask to look into patterns that keep arising in folks' lives. So we'll look into kind of, you know, what happens in relationships for you. So a lot of people will have an order of events that tends to reoccur. So sometimes people <laughs> will say... Until their spirit recognizes yeah. a lesson. Yeah. yeah. So they'll start to notice, you know, things are going well, and then I worry that they're going to leave. So then I, you know, I'm really cold to them, and then we feel disconnected, we fight, and then we make up again, and then things are okay for a little while until the next time, right? And so in that case, we're looking for, you know, what leads you to that point where you're afraid they're going to leave you, you know? What, uh, there's a lot of people with fear of abandonment, whether it's emotional or actually the physical leaving. And so then usually I say at that point, there's probably a good reason why you're so afraid of this. You know, have you ever felt this feeling before tangibly, you know, or is this a feeling you've always had? How long have you been feeling like this? And a lot of people will end up kind of getting there on their own without me really having to ask many more questions. So, yeah, because I do believe that we're all you know, coping with our circumstances, trying to survive them. And so I think at a certain point, though, the ways we protect ourselves, whether that be like in this example, someone at home and they felt like they were going to be abandoned, maybe they would just, you know, walk away and isolate, right? Maybe that felt protective to them. But now it's keeping them from a close relationship that they really Mm -hmm. want. So then we have to take down, you know, that feeling of risk that's happening in those moments, so that they they feel safe enough to say, okay, I can keep engaging. It's safe to do that. And they can kind of get rid of the survival instinct. And so that's why I tell people it's so hard to get rid of them is because at one point they kept you, you know, mm. alive. Yeah. The survival instincts, yeah. Exactly. You love and you to behave you in connected. particular ways, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that don't serve you now. Exactly. Mm. So that's kind of how I look at it is there's no right or wrong coping skill or coping reaction. There's just kind of what you did. We often don't get to choose, especially if it starts when we're pretty young. And then, you know, but we have the chance when we get older and when we, you know, want to grow in our relationships and and in feeling, you know, closer to ourselves even to decide if that still serves us or not. And sometimes it doesn't. And that's part of an issue that comes up in a relationship. Mm. What are the type of things that I guess you you see that brings people to that acknowledgement because I think a lot of this change has to first come from a point where people acknowledge that they have mm-hmm. a, a challenge or yeah. a problem or things aren't working. And I think for, for a majority of people, they're quite happily living in ignorance. Mm. And um, while everyone else can see what's going on, they're just cruising along, being unhappy or happy being unhappy. Um, but what do you think is that... Do you, it, is there a pattern of things or is there a common thing that sort of happens for people to pick up the phone and go, oh, doc, yeah. I, I need some help? I think people often have to get to a point where they're ready on yeah. their own. So most people who seek me out have actually seen therapists before that didn't really work for them. And 
so they kind of get to this point where they get like exhausted almost with the way things have been or they're, you know, thinking it's really value, a big value for me to have, you know, a really safe and comfortable family. And right now I feel like that's not happening or it'll come up like looking like, you know, depression or anxiety or feeling isolated. So then they'll often come or they'll come for something completely different <laughs> and it ends yeah. up actually turning into the center of everything. And I find that most people actually feel pretty relieved because they're like, oh, there could be a reason why things are so hard, you know? So I always give the example of therapy kind of being them and I putting together a puzzle and looking at the finished product and then kind of deciding what to do. So in the beginning, we're kind of putting that together um, in our sessions together, figuring out what's been going on, the pattern, what might have led to it. And then we look at it and we say, okay, what now? You know, what do we want to be different? What? And I, and I reassure people too, that one single change in the whole cycle of things changes the whole cycle. Right. Yeah. And so even if they're making minute changes every so often or taking a new interpersonal risk that they want to take, that'll impact things. So they don't have to do this big grand thing all the time to... Yeah to change their situation. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. So um, what about talking about lifting self-esteem, obviously? Steps. Well, what are steps, yeah, that we can take to lift um, our self-esteem? Obviously, like mastering a new skill. Well, what do we tell mm. our clients? Are we saying self-esteem is similar to self-worth? I'd say. No. Very similar. Yeah, or even, yeah, like how do you form a robust identity with yourself? Yeah. You know? I, well, I think you touched yeah. on it earlier. You said, especially for us to feel good about ourselves with mm-hmm. self-esteem, it's always about being the best we can be, which yeah. sort of makes that comparison with other people. Right. And, you know, I've heard her saying that, you know, comparison is the theft of joy. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Quite, yeah. You know, it, it literally is. Yeah. So that whole self-worth, self-esteem piece mm-hmm. comes back to how we compare ourselves with ourselves. Like yeah. I said, I guess that, that ties all of that together, a bit like, a, like the Venn yeah. diagram about self-compassion, self-worth, self-esteem, mm-hmm. with that comparison with self on, yeah. a da- on a daily basis sometimes. Right. I think if we're talking about kind of, you know, growing in our understandings of our understanding of ourself, in our trust with ourself, which I think is something we can build. It's an interesting concept, but... Yeah. Um, I think usually even just taking a risk and knowing that you're anxious about it, but doing anyway, doing it anyway, helps a lot of people. Yeah. I know a lot of people when they get to the end of our time in therapy or even part of the way through, one of the things that I hear a lot, you know, is I just trust myself in, you know, making decisions or taking care of myself, right? And that's not something a lot of people start with. And so... I think, yeah, as I said already, you know, community and support is going to be everything. You're not going to, you know, feel great about yourself when you're just alone. And so I think having folks around you that can lift you up always is a great idea because we're not supposed to do it alone. And I think in the U.S., I notice it's hyper-independence. That is pretty common. And so a lot of people will come feeling ashamed that they can't do it alone. And I'm like, that's not how we were created. So let's get you some support. Um, it's interesting that you talk yeah. about, like, just from a cultural perspective, yeah. 
Because like even as a business coach, I know through probably the it's it's starting to shift now, but over you know ten fifteen years, maybe even longer. Quite often, you know, the leader that was put up on the pedestal was that hero, that hero leader. Yeah. You know, the guy that was leading from the front, taking charge, and pretty much probably just a narcissist, really. But that overworks. Yeah, that yeah. overworks and expects everyone else to overwork at the same yeah. time. Whereas that's starting to shift. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that, that's you've seen that flowing through into into the cultural piece as well. Yeah, I think I'm seeing it especially with you know the younger generation that they're starting to realize you know. A lot of our previous generations were told that feeling emotions out loud with your people is something you should avoid if you can. And now it's, you know, a necessity, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially when the state of the world is really confusing or intense or scary. Um, I think even just camaraderie is huge. You know, mm. I think that's what got me through graduate school was, you know, saying, I'm really struggling with this or I haven't even started this mm. or I'm really worried about this yeah. and someone else saying, oh my gosh, me too. So those moments alone bolster us. But I think too, just in growing your self-compassion, a lot of people get to the point where they're, you know, feeling like they actually like themselves. And that usually means they can spend more time alone. They can spend more time taking risks, knowing that there's not going to be this harsh response in their mind, right? Where they're thinking, I am going to try, you know, I tried sewing this year and then I immediately went to Australia. So I barely did it at all. Um, But I was kind with myself about it, right? I was like, you know, I'm going to get back to that when I get home. And it's okay to suck really bad at the beginning and for everything (laughs) to look not very good. Because, you know, the thing I'm telling myself that's compassionate is everyone has to learn. You're supposed to suck. Yeah. Yep. Like sucking yeah. is the way to doing well. Yeah. And so I think when there's more self-compassion, you can go through life without it feeling so high stakes, you know? Yeah. And then there's always your people to fall back on too that are close yeah. to you and feel safe. This is it's something I, I think a, a little bit around, I'm probably spending a little bit more time in recent times seeing where's that line between ambition and, and contentment? Hmm. Because, you know, this whole thing about self-compassion and being happy with ourselves is, mm-hmm. to a certain degree, being happy with where we're at. Yeah. But then how do we challenge ourselves to grow, which is where the ambition comes in, because if you get hyper-ambitious, it can suck the life out of you. Yeah. But you still need that growth and that challenge, but you also want some of that contentment yeah. as well. So yeah. where's, that, where's that line between the two? You're bringing up something that people always say whenever I talk about self-compassion, which is like, how do I motivate myself? You know, I motivate myself by being like, you need to get it done, right? And so actually, again, the queen, Dr. Kristen Neff has studied this and found that we are actually more productive and um, get more work done and accomplish more of our goals, essentially, when we use self-compassion than when we don't. Mm. And so it's interesting because I think a lot of people, myself included at the time when I was learning about it, thought, okay, then how do I push myself? How do I complete my goals? How do I, you know, move towards all my values that are really important to me if I'm not in my own head going, go, 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 like a drill sergeant. But instead, you're kind of at this point where you're thinking, you know, that would be really good for me. Or that's really important to me. So I want to move towards that because I think that I could deserve that opportunity, you Mm. know? And so people actually can take more opportunities or 
you know, there's more room to try new things or to go for a goal, knowing again that it's not going to be the end of the world if it doesn't work out. Yeah. So stand at the end of, edge of your comfort zone, what you're saying, you know, basically, you know, try out yeah. new things and um, get out of your comfort zone um, yeah. and know that you're okay with that. Exactly. That you're still a survivor. Know that there's people behind you and know that you won't, you know, sit in shame in the shower and in bed all the time thinking about yeah. all the embarrassing things you've ever yeah. done. Or... So there are things like trying yeah. something new, meeting new people, or um, trying to do something new in an unconventional way, just something that, that might yeah. be stimulating for you. Well, and I think something else I notice a lot in the U.S. is the work culture is really unhealthy. I think most people in the world know that, um, that we work a lot, too much. And so a lot of people don't even feel like they have time or energy for hobbies, but they so a lot of people don't actually even have them, wow. which is probably shocking to hear in a yeah, different country. Is. That is. Yeah. Yeah. Is. yeah. So I've sat with a lot of people and, you know, talked about, you know, what wow. brings you joy to do? What what do you like doing? What makes you feel like yourself that's not work? And people often don't have answers for me, which is devastating to me. <laughs> um, yeah. And I actually was the same way until I finished graduate school. Like, that's when I picked back up reading for fun and I tried sewing. And, you know, I'm thinking about getting into crocheting again because I liked it, you know, because I have that mind to do it and I have some time that I didn't yeah. have before. So I think that's another external issue that's making it hard for people to connect with themselves is, you know, it's so expensive to live right now. Mm. Um, we're truly in a crisis where poverty is is getting pretty intense and a lot of people don't have time or mental energy to do a whole lot outside of work. Yeah. So I think there's some contextual issues that make it tough for folks in the U.S. too. Mm. Yeah. Which I'm sure happens over here, but I sure hope to a lesser mm. extent. Mm. So. Yeah. So what about um, one of the strategies also is mm -hmm. not worrying about what other people think. I know as you get mm. older, it's it's just such oh, it just happens. that you just don't worry about what <laughs> other people yeah think. Yeah. And you completely feel free. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how do people like, you know, who are younger, obviously, mm -hmm. get to that stage? I think one of those things that makes it hard for a lot of younger people is... This, there's this idea that we talk about in emotionally focused therapy, which is the safe base, which is supposed to be one or both of your parents, right? So there's supposed mm, to be a person yeah. yeah, where if you go out and you make a mistake, you come home and you know they're going to be there regardless, right? Unconditionally. And so when you don't have a safe base, mm. it's really difficult to go out into the world and, you know, put yourself out there because... You don't have someone back at home that's going to unconditionally accept you. I think that's something that makes it a lot more doable, right? I grew up in a home where they said, you know, if they don't like you, not everyone's going to like you. And that's totally normal. Not everyone hears this. And that if they don't like you, that's their problem, right? And so at times I was able to take that to heart. I think in teenagehood it was a bit harder. But I think you also, again, it depends on how alone you already feel. To some people, I think it's a pretty big risk mm. to not be liked. Um, and to other people, it's not, right? Like, I'm at the point in my life where not everyone is going to like me. I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but it's taken me a while to get there. And the reason why I feel that way is because I have spectacular people around me that I know enjoy me for who I am. 
Mm. You know, and that should be your focus. And like you said, exactly. like um, we talked about, I think about letting negative people go. Those toxic mm. people, those toxic friendships. Um, if they've got nothing positive to say or put you down, or they take advantage of you, mm-hmm. they're the ones to let go. And again, I think that's a point that you get to when you start to realize that you have the same value as everyone around you, and that you deserve those friendships. Those supportive people. Yeah. yeah. So that's something I often talk with people about. Is it's not. It's not that you have to earn your value, right? There's a lot of people in the world who have what I call achievement-based value. That was me included, which is I need to do well or look impressive. And then, you know, people will respond. People will celebrate me. People will be excited about me and I'll be good enough in that moment, right? Um, I hear it a lot, especially now that, you know, college is so widespread and that's kind of an expectation or university. My apologies. Um, And... So then I kind of get to this point where I'll usually ask people, you know, take a random child in this world. Are they valuable? And they're like, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what makes them valuable? And they're like, well, they're, you know, they're a kid. And I say, yeah, by being a human, you are valuable, right? When someone passes away, that's really mm-hmm. intense for humans yeah. around, right? Because a human life leaving is a big deal. They had value. Yeah whatever they added to this world, you know, you don't have to add to this world, you just have to exist. And so that's a hard idea for people to grasp. But once you get there, and you think, you know, I don't have to do anything or earn, you know, this value, it's just inherent. Mm -hmm. That's usually a pretty big game changer and allows people, again, to expect more for themselves. And Sometimes that's when they can start talking about boundaries with people in their lives who don't treat them very well. So, and I think the other strategy that that's quite big is facing your fear, isn't it? No, um, you allow yourself to feel afraid, but you keep going anyway. I think that really raises your confidence and, in Mm -hmm. turn, your self-esteem. Absolutely. Um, So it's it's that self-esteem that's often found between. Let me think about that quote: um, the dance between your deepest fears and. No, deepest desires and greatest fears, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. the things that matter are usually the scariest. <laughs> yeah. Now, you've mentioned boundaries a couple of times. Mm. Do you have any tips on how people can establish mm. healthy boundaries? Because yeah. I, I find, what well, I found in, in coaching is that a lot of the challenges that people experience are because they don't understand that there's boundaries that they can put up. Right, yes. One of my favorite sayings about boundaries that helps, because I think people feel mean for adding boundaries. It's all like black you or know? white, like yeah. I either like someone or I hate someone. And right. there's so many boundaries in between that, isn't there? Yeah. And so I love the saying, I'm not sure where it's from, but it is that boundaries allow me to love you and myself simultaneously. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> we talked it's, about that yeah, this, it's this idea beautiful. that like, you know, for example, if you have a friend who let me think of something in specific who is saying things about your body that you're uncomfortable with in front of other friends as a random example a boundary you can add there is you can privately say to them hey when you talk about my body this is how i feel and if you do that i'm going to leave functions where that's happening or i'm going to ask you to stop or whatever it is so usually with a boundary if you're adding a new one I like to encourage people to talk about what the, the behavior is that's bothering them. Because usually, you know, people can tell where there needs to be a boundary because they like feel gross or disrespected mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, something that keeps happening. And so 
yeah, I'll encourage them to kind of say like, here's what's bothering me. It's making me feel this way. If they feel comfortable enough, then they can do that. And if not, that's okay. And then kind of say what the consequence of that action will be. So, And then they need to enforce that, don't they? Because quite often, I guess the experience I've had is people will say, oh, look, I'll put this boundary up. But Mm -hmm. then when it flares back up, they haven't enforced it so that people just keep getting away with it. Exactly. Um, And a lot of times that can be family. Oh, it's mostly family yeah, that no, I talk so, about yeah, yeah, yeah. this with. And you just go, really? Yeah. You've gone down that path again? Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah, so um, yeah, so that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, so you have to stick by it, but you can only do that if you think that you're important enough to do yeah. that. So yeah. I think it goes back to that exact thing. This loop thing, that right? keeps coming back around, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're getting to the end of the show, unfortunately. So, oh, we um, are. Um, obviously, we've had some great talks um, yeah. this week. It's been such a pleasure to have you both. Um, what books would you recommend that? Because um, mm-hmm. you're like me, you. I'm a, a library. Reader. Yeah. You love a library, don't yeah, you? I do. So, <laughs> what books would you recommend um, to some to to our audience? Yeah. So. I've already brought up Kristen Neff a bunch of times, Dr. Kristen Neff. She has a book that's kind of a great, I think, primer on what this looks like. And it's written for anyone who wants to pick it up. It's not for clinicians at all. And well, it is, too, as other human beings. Yeah. But um, it's called Self-Compassion, and it's by Dr. Kristen Neff. That's something you can find easily. The other one that I really like if we're thinking about couples, especially those who have been through really tough times in the past is called Hold Me Tight. It's by Dr. Sue Johnson. It's also written just kind of for couples to read together. And if you're interested in a lot of different things around attachment and, you know, reliance on others in a healthy way, Dr. Sue Johnson has a lot of books. She's the creator of emotion-focused therapy that I practice. So those would probably be the big ones, I think, that relate to today. Yeah, that's great. Any final comments? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank oh, yeah. you. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. It's been fantastic. Yeah, wealth of knowledge that you actually are. So we're lu- so lucky to have her at home, but we so are. lucky to have her in the studio also. Quite an expert. All right. So um, you're listening to The Wellness Couch, where science meets ancient wisdom. Um, and we're your hosts, Katarina and Brett Morris. And we'll, we hope that you'll join us for another session of The Wellness Couch on live radio next Thursday, 87.6 FM. Love and happiness to you all. Bye-bye. See Thanks you next very much. week. Bye. Bye.